What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And now I'm realizing it again, over and over, I have to learn the same lesson. No, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna do this. And most of the time, 90%, I listen because it's such a wealth of information out there from all the people. But now I know that there's my moment to speak. And now is my moment and I have to speak and I have to share what I know and, and get it out and help others to carry it forward. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin, and you're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode Find the Voice Behind Your Vision. On last week's episode, we dove into a subject that often is overlooked when it comes to entrepreneurship. There's a lot of hype around the act of launching your first big idea and those crucial first few years of a startup. But what happens after that carries its own challenges. This week, we are speaking with fashion entrepreneur Eileen Fisher, who debuted her iconic clothing brand back in 1984. In the world of fashion, to be that successful for that long is extremely impressive, considering how contingent success is on constant development of new styles, staying on top of consumer tastes, and continuing to innovate as the retail environment shifts around you. Amidst all that, it can be a struggle to keep a firm grasp on the initial vision that gave your whole business its spark. For Eileen, it was a particular challenge. Not because her vision for radical simplicity in women's clothing wasn't good or strong, but because she was by nature a quiet leader, an artist and a designer who preferred to let her work speak for itself. After years of quiet struggle, Eileen has found her voice, and she's learning how to use it to reignite a fire behind the big vision her brand has always had. Eileen Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today. You first ventured into clothing design in 1984. Why don't you tell me how you got there and what was your original plan? <laughs> plan. Well, <laughs> planning is not my gift, so uh, I'll try to tell you how I got there. Um, <laughs> Um, well, let's see, it's always, where do I start this? Um, I'd actually been working in interior design and graphic design. I, I had a partner who was my boyfriend who we worked and lived together and we went, we were doing graphic design and we went to Japan. He was Japanese. And I think that was the kind of inspiration moment. Um, I remember being kind of taken with the kimono and just thinking that it was so amazing that a simple shape like that was the only shape everyone wore for over a thousand years in Japan. So I was fascinated by that idea that a design could be that timeless and still be so beautiful. So I think that kind of inspiration was there, but it was in my mind for five years before the first garments came out. Um, I, uh, I ended up 
while on a, my journey, leaving the boyfriend and um, getting myself a loft in Tribeca. And I was doing, still doing some graphics and some interior design projects, just piecing it together, trying to survive, struggle, struggling, freelancing. And I ended up at the boutique show and a friend was a jewelry designer uh, and he was a sculptor, but he did jewelry to survive. Most of my artist friends did some kind of design or, or some kind of day job. So I went with him to see, you know, just to see the boutique show. And um, I don't know if you know, but that show, now it happens at the Javits Center. And at that point it was at the Coliseum. And it was a place where small designers and vendors showed their wares to small boutiques that came from around the country. And so I just remember walking through there and it was like I could see the clothes, like the clothes, the pictures had been coming to me for years, just simple shapes. I saw this sort of box top and I saw this simple pant and, you know, just these very simple, simple shapes, this little square shape, kind of simple sort of shell. And um, of course, the kimono. And so these shapes and part of the idea about the shapes was that the way the shapes went together, they worked like a like a system. I also tell the story that I'd worn a uniform for 12 years. I went to Catholic school. And so I, I just remember that it was so easy to get dressed, even though I hated my uniform. But I liked when I came to New York, I strangely missed the uniform and like taking so much time to get dressed and I had to look like a designer and oh my God, and going shopping and I would just get depressed. And, you know, it was just so much work. And I just wanted to make getting dressed simpler. First for myself, but then I thought I had an idea. So anyway, this idea was brewing for literally five years in my mind. And I ended up uh, at the boutique show and it was like all of a sudden as I was walking through, it was like I could see it. I could picture up on the wall my clothes. And it was, it was like it came to me like a vision. And part of my problem, which I was talking about a little bit earlier, is that it's that I um, I have trouble finding my voice. I have trouble speaking and certainly articulating what my idea is. And I couldn't imagine. I had artist friends that would go to these different stores, Bendel's and Bloomingdale's, and wait in line. And the buyers would just say no, you know, with like no explanation. They'd be in a hurry and they'd say no, not that, not that, not that. And I just I just didn't have the confidence to to deal with that rejection, I guess. So I thought, at least if I could present my whole idea, then I might have shot at somebody being interested in buying it. Yeah, and they they were interested then, right? <laughs> I mean, not to not to jump uh, too far yeah, ahead of your story, but <laughs> but but you you did succeed in in sort of doing that and making that that kind of visual vision, as you say, um, become a reality and the foundation for the business. Yeah, that's what happened. I just you know, created the first few pieces and hung them up at the boutique show. First show wasn't so great, but I learned a lot because I'm a big listener. I was like, oh, what do you think? And listening to people. Of course, the first day I couldn't speak at all. But once I got going, um, I, I learned a lot about what I, you know, how to make my clothes more relevant and um, what the buyers were looking for and how what I was doing fit. And so then by the second boutique show, I came back and people were like standing in line to write orders for my clothes. And so I just knew I had a business. And from then it was like one day at a time, just keep going just try to make it work, make the business work, make the numbers work, you know, hire people, you know, just grow it one step at a time. 
I, I love that you said that you listened right away um, when you weren't speaking. Uh, what What is the, the value there of, uh, I guess, did you find the value there right away in keeping your ears open and, and just sort of listening? Yeah. Right. I, I'm a big listener. I, I think I, because I was always so shy, I think I was observant and listening to people. And, and I just learned so much at that show, listening to the buyers, listening to people talk. And, and, and in fact, that was the way I always ended up working was listening and, you know, I'd always say that line would shift as, as I would listen to the buyers. I would be like, oh, right, they see something I missed. Or, or what I would do is sort of filter it through my own, um, my own idea. And sometimes they'd ask for things and I'd go, no, 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 not leopard prints. No, 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 that won't go, you know. So I always would say that I would learn more when I listened. I, you know, I, I know what I know, but I learn what they know when I listen. So, so that's been important the whole time I've been running this business. And you started out very much with an artist's vision. Um, uh, how much were you thinking about the business stuff at first? You know, that the fact you'd have to have a bank, you'd want to do CODs, you'd want to vary, you know, do, do your orders in various sizes. Was that part of your thinking originally? I mean, I ask because the first two years are often like completely make or break for fashion brands. Um, and I want to know more about what that period was like for you. Right. It's weird because I often tell the story that I went to the boutique show and I didn't even put prices on my clothes. So I hadn't even thought about what I would charge for them or whether I could make a profit. But wow. I, it's interesting, but I did know conceptually that my idea was simple. You know, that it was going to be these sort of iconic shapes that you could repeat over and over again. I had a friend who was a pattern maker and she worked at this company and they were just churning out so many styles all the time. And I just thought, I remember thinking, well, my business isn't going to be like that. It's going to be much simpler. We're not going to have to do that much work. We're going to get these styles and get them perfect and just keep making them, make them in different fabrics, make them in different colors, that kind of thing. Little did I know. <laughs> Little did I know that it w wasn't really that simple. But at least I was holding that simple idea that actually was, it was on some level a business concept. You know, what's remarkable, I was just rereading a piece about you that was in The New Yorker in 2013. Oh, and no. <laughs> it sort of, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was great. You know, it's, it's sort of had these, these ideas that at first you didn't know exactly how to design or make clothes, but you figured that out. And you said you also like didn't know how to run a business. Um, so <laughs> I love that um, because you were making money um, and it was growing. But what did you have to learn in those first few years to turn it into a real business, um, aside from just how to work with a bank? I had to learn everything about clothing design. I had to work with pattern makers. I had to learn how, to, how the fabric hung and worked and I had to learn how to work with the with the fabric companies and how to buy fabric and how to find factories to sew things. I even had to learn how to ship things UPS. I didn't even know how to do that. It's so crazy, you know. Um, I had to learn how to make tags for the clothes and how to quality control and and do customer service, listen to the customers, you know, complain that things weren't working or that things weren't fitting or whatever was wrong, you know and just how to deal with all of it, you know, and just every day was a new challenge and just just to keep going was the thing. Yeah. How much um, how much of the sustainability um, that Eileen Fisher, the brand is known for today, uh, was baked in initially? Yeah, I think a very important, most important parts, I think, were there from the beginning. The 
even if we haven't held them as well as I wish I could have. Like I like to say, radical simplicity. You know, that, that idea of the kimono, it's really radically a simple idea. Or the, the box top or the little square top, these simple, simple shapes and the idea that you don't really need more than that. You just mix them and match them and you, you know, you change the proportion and, you know, it's a radically simple idea. And so I think, I think that's a sustainable idea. Good quality materials, radically simple. You know, the simpler a piece is, the longer it lasts, the more timeless it is. It's amazing to me. I continue to see that. Yeah, and and then I think what happened to me around sustainability is I thought because we worked only with natural fibers, I thought that natural fibers, because they were, they broke down in the environment, were, were sustainable. It took me a while to understand that, you know, that cotton, for example, um, uh, conventional cotton is very polluting fiber. And, you know, they use a lot of pesticides and herbicides and all kinds of things and dye, toxic dyes and that. So it, that, that, those kind of ideas, you know, they came in later. Um, I think it was about 25 years ago I hired a woman to be the head of head of social consciousness at the company and we were concerned about workers in the factories and you know she started bringing up sustainability and you know um, had some work done around all of our materials that we were using to help us understand how to make better choices and and to learn about things you know we really learned a lot and now we're at this place which is really exciting which not only you know, doing less bad, but actually trying to use the business to to make positive change. And and that's what we're doing, like with the regenerative um, agriculture, um, that you can actually draw down carbon. And it's so exciting to me. Uh, So to me, it's very exciting to think that we can actually make clothing, which is actually by nature quite a polluting process, and actually use it to actually turn around the problem. That's great. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about, um, you know, some years ago when you're, you're using these high quality fabrics, all natural fabrics. And to me, there's always something interesting about that um, and what seemed to be, you know, kind of more ecological than your average store. You know, how do you balance that kind of business growth, though, with sustainability? You know, you don't all often think of eco or green when you think about the shopping malls of the 90s or the aughts, right? Um, and the places where stores were. Um, how did you how did you kind of envision the business and its growth during that time while, while this vision was being created for you? Well, you know, growth isn't something that I personally think that much about or care that much about. Um, it's a conflict, though, because other people who do sales work and, you know, and I must admit, I get excited when a fabric sells really well, especially if it's a sustainable one, you know. Uh, So there's sort of a conflict between growth and, you know, just making really good things, you know, and so it's all, it's, it's a struggle. And I think it's something that this, this virus situation has really uh, kind of forced us to stop because we were starting to just make too much, I think make too much, even good things, unless they're regenerative totally, you know, still have impact, you know, and, and there's still a lot of waste in the system in terms of ordering, ordering too much of this or not enough of that. And then, you know, 
even in the recycling, we're taking everything back, but we're still trying to figure out what to do with some of it and that kind of thing. And so to see the problem magnify, you know, magnified and to realize we're just one medium sized company, this problem is massive. So to me, you know, there's almost something positive in, I hate to say the virus, that's terrible to say something, but the idea of stopping and just sort of stopping the machine that's been turning fast for the whole fashion industry and ourselves included. So we're, we're, we're really assessing, reassessing, you know, how to do just the right things, how to really recommit to radical simplicity and be true to our, our essence more and more. And so that's where I am, what matters. When we come back, I'll talk with Eileen about how she lost grasp of the core of her company and then found her voice. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What was the period of biggest growth for Eileen Fisher, the brand? Well, let's see. Our biggest growth was probably the mid-teen years, 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, like that. Yeah, and then we've, we've slowed since then. And um, I think it's okay. Um, I think a couple of things. One is I think we've, we've had a couple of blips in our history, you know, um, challenges, difficult moments. I think we're in another one. And it started before the crisis where we lost our way a little bit. We just didn't learn to say no. And I think because we were successful, you know, the stores just kept thinking everything was going to continue to sell and just kept buying more. And, you know, we kept producing more and they kept requesting more and new and different and more new and different and more. And, and, and we're all about those iconic, simple, basic, you know, with a twist, with an edge at times, you know, but still something you know, consistent. There's something very consistent about our design and it's fit and it's the shapes and the fabrics and all of that. And I think we've lost our consistency and we've lost something of our core. So we've spent a lot of time the last two months and we were already on this journey to kind of return to, you know, the sort of radically simple roots of our company. And I think, um, I think it's a good thing. I think it's the right thing. There were some years uh, prior to that, I think, I believe at least prior to that um, boom time you talk about where you were a little less involved in the company. Um, and was it during those times that um, I, I read that you brought in um, an outside CEO at one point? I believe this was pretty early on and and it didn't go so well. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> can you tell me, tell me that story? I think I brought him in when I was pregnant with my second child. So that would have been 27 years ago, something like that. So yeah, that was quite wow. a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that I just thought, oh my God, I'm going to need help. I can't do this, you know, with the second child. 
So that seemed like a really good idea. But we had very independent company. Like I was sort of independent person. People had, you know, people were doing things their way or the way we had built the sort of we called Island Fisher way. And um, it didn't work so well. And I think we were kind of a feminine model, kind of collaborative. And he, he was a good guy, you know, and he really meant well. But, you know, our company doesn't work so um like other companies, people don't take, I wouldn't say take orders, because it's not exactly that, but um, maybe it is. They don't really take <laughs> orders. That's not how it works. Yeah, it's always yeah. a dialogue. It's always back and forth. Is this a good idea? Should we do this? You know, um, even for me, you know, they'll fight back and say, no, it's not an Eileen Fisher style. I'm like, wait a minute, who's Eileen Fisher? <laughs> you know, or that's not the way our clothes are. I'm like, well... Let's think about that, you know. But uh, That's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Yeah, has that culture sustained itself through the years? Is that still yeah. part of the feel and the vibe of the company? I think that it, I think it, it is. It's an important part. And I think uh, well, over the years, we shared ownership. 40% of the company belongs to employees. I think that's there's a lot of really dedicated people who, you know, are part owners. So they care in some way that's different. And we also see that as we got bigger, part of what went wrong, I think, is that we didn't have enough controls, you know, and we lost key people in key places that we weren't crystal clear about their roles. Uh, so I think what we've really learned is that we need a structure, like we need the bones of the company. We need a clear structure and people have to be accountable for specific, important things. There have to be touch points and clear decision-making points and people. But that doesn't mean we let go of the collaborative process that's been our success, the listening and the connecting. And, the, and in fact, I'm seeing places where we don't have enough of it. You know, so it's both. We need both. Sometimes I say we need the masculine and the feminine, you know, to really be successful. And so that's in all of us. We all have the opportunity to be, you know, both, you know, strong, clear, decisive, but also collective, collaborative, you know, connecting, listening. It's both. Both are so important. Yeah. And how did you how did you nurture those through the years? How did you uh, I mean, is there is there like a, a secret or something that you would like would would be able to impart to other people about how you built that culture and how if it strayed along the way, if it faltered, how it did and how you kind of regained that back? Yeah, um, I think I think when it strayed is when it went off the center you know, off the core idea, off the real DNA or essence of who we are. Like, what was that original idea? Coming back always to that. Um, so when we go too far from that, it doesn't seem to work. Um, and now we're re-anchoring the center, the creative teams, and, you know, reconnecting parts that kind of fell away. So some of the, uh, the business started running the center. It wasn't intentional. It just started to happen that way. And so... The thing is that the creative has to be at the center and it has to be married with the business. It has to, they have to really understand each other really, really well. And how do you, how do you, um, when things kind of come away from the center, how do you come in and fix them? You know, what, how do you, um, were there moments or was there a moment uh, where you, you kind of came back in and said, this is not going right. Here's how we fix it. 
Yeah, I think that this is probably the third time I've done this. And this time is going to be the last time because I've learned how to speak finally, for God's sakes. <laughs> I've learned to find my voice and I'm going to articulate because this concept is not rocket science. There's nothing particularly complicated about it. I just haven't given definition. I haven't articulated as clearly as it needs to be articulated. So that's the lesson. It's about um, so each time the, the things went off the center, I realized it, was, it wasn't truth the clothing that went off. And the clothing goes off when the right people aren't connecting in the right way. So the clothes, the idea of the clothes is they're a system. I always talk about the line as a system. It goes together. It's supposed to work together, that uniform idea. And when the people aren't connecting along the line, the creative teams that are creating the clothes and, you know, figuring out the shapes and fitting them and, you know, and figuring out the fabrics and working with the business teams and the merchandising teams and the, the people doing the photography and all the creative people, when they're not uh, well linked, everyone is creating different things. And then the picture doesn't work in the end and the whole thing falls apart. So um, I, now what I'm doing is uh, redefining the structure and I'm still in the midst of that to help to support it to work without me. You know, partly articulating the product, the idea, the concept behind it and making sure that the roles, that the structure is defined and it's not going to be defined in the way a typical company is defined. You know, it's not going to be, you know, CEO, COO, CFOs, you know, whatever. It's going to have a different kind of structure. And I haven't, I'm not crystal clear, but it's forming. It's getting very close. So I'm excited about it because I think it's really going to be the right blend. And I think it's going to be true to who we are and unique to who we are. When we try to follow a structure that's set up for someone else, and whether that's a computer system or a um, timeline system or whether it's a hierarchical structure, it doesn't work. We have to make it unique to us. We have to make it fit what we're trying to do. And I think that's a good business lesson. And do you think that customers and people outside the company will notice the change as well? I think so. I think so. I definitely think so. Um, our plan is that by next spring, we'll, you'll really see it. Um, but we already are going backwards and pushing things into fall. There's already a lot that's changed for going forward into fall. So um, we'll see. I think people will see it. Definitely. That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. What were the last two times you had to step in and, and make a big change? Oh, God. Um, well, the one we talked about and yeah. the other one that's standing out for me was we created the New York line. Um, and this was, this was a real lesson in um, not saying no. And it was, um, I don't remember what year that was. Um, I'm lost now. I can't remember things in years. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but anyway, it was the one in between. <laughs> so what happened is that um, we were selling to department stores, but we were, and we'd been selling a lot of casual clothes. And then we um, started doing silks and um, more um, workwear and, uh, you know, higher quality materials. And some of the stores said that the clothes we were making didn't fit in their department. So we should make another line to fit in the higher end department. So in doing that, we, the line, we, 
we kind of started working with fabrics. We started just building two lines and we, and, and then it just became too much, too much stuff, too much, and too many new untested materials. And we did find good things. We learned a lot, just like this period, we are learning so much. Uh, and finding good things too. So, I mean, we have made some serious mistakes, you know, but in the middle of it is always the secret to the next success. You you mentioned that, uh, you know, this time you feel like you found your voice and yeah, you're comfortable time. expressing it. Can you talk a little bit about... I comfortable yet. Okay, I'm okay. working on it. I was you're still willing, out. <laughs> You're willing to express it. I'm going it. to do it. I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How How is it? Um, how was it having been a CEO who was not always super comfortable doing interviews or writing your story or telling it, you know? Um, and, and I'd love to hear, I don't know, kind of what it's like what that was like and and what changed oh man I I would say that I I've been doing a lot of personal work you know I have been doing therapy since I was 30 and I'm almost 70 so it's like and you know all kinds of personal growth and you know meditation and yoga I've done everything everything every personal way I could to make myself strong I've just done everything just like trying so hard to find myself and to be true to myself, and um, and I I don't I don't know why it's clicked in this time. I just think that this time it's so urgent. It's like there's so much at stake. It all could be lost. My life's work could be lost. I mean, and not just my life's work, but all the wonderful people who've built this company and all the work we've done and all the customers who love us and all. It just it feels urgent and it feels like we're on a mission to change the fashion industry and, and that, that, we, that we belong in this time and that more than ever. And, and so it just feels, it feels more urgent. It feels more pressing to really, really survive this. And yeah. so surviving means, you know, speaking what's true for me and just doing that and asking for what I need and saying it and saying no where I need to say no. I mean, that is my life lesson, finding my voice, saying no. Don't just say yes like the department stores because they wanted us to be in the other department. You know, I could have said no, I, you know, or let's just move to that department and move everything up there or something, but I didn't understand it, you know. So um, anyway... I guess you're just supposed to learn. I guess that's what life is. Just a journey. Just supposed <laughs> to course, learn. Just keep making course. the same mistakes and just keep learning. Yeah. And and what um I mean, what was it that was holding you back previously? Was it a mix of kind of the conflict avoidance plus introversion? I I mean I'm not trying to diagnose yeah. you here. No, it's all <laughs> I of it. I don't know you well. <laughs> yeah, it's all of it. Yeah. Um yeah, some kind of real um I think trauma from childhood. I had certain trauma. And I think that I'm from a family of seven kids. And we were just taught, we were girls, six girls. And somehow we were taught to listen, which has been really served me really, really well. And um, and kind of that our voices didn't matter. You know, children should be seen and not heard. My dad would say that all the time. And it was kind of a joke, you know, but if you crossed him, you knew who was the boss, you know. And that and stuff gets in your head, right? It gets in your head. It's like it my does. voice doesn't matter. 
you know, so I remember when I realized, and that was six years ago when we did that Vision 2020 work that I remember standing up and saying yes to being a 100% sustainable company, even though I didn't know how we were going to do that. And I remember the woman who was our head of social consciousness saying, Eileen, that moment was a turning point for the company when you said yes, when you said we're going to do this. And I was like, wow, my voice matters? Wow. God practically made me cry. I'm like, oh my God. And now I'm realizing it again, over and over, I have to learn the same lesson. No, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna do this. And most of the time, 90%, I listen because it's such a wealth of information out there from all the people. But now I know that there's my moment to speak. And now is my moment and I have to speak and I have to share what I know and, and get it out and, and yeah. help others to carry it forward. Yeah, I mean, well, you've built this company that has such an amazing story, and now it's yours to tell. Like you're, <laughs> you're the one. Um, mm -hmm. What does that feel like? Is that is that a weighty feeling? Yeah. That yeah, yeah, yeah. It's terrifying, but I don't know. I guess I'm doing a lot of terrifying things these days, so I'm just pushing through and doing the best I can, and being okay to make mistakes. I'm. Sure, I made a few. I'm sure I said things I shouldn't have. I don't know today, but that's okay. I'm just, it's just, it's all okay. It doesn't matter anymore. Just keep going. Keep, you know, telling what's true for me and keep going. Eileen Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. After speaking with Eileen, it's remarkable to me that she's clearly still in the middle of a transformation after 35 years in business. And after bringing her company through multiple eras, she's found renewed strength in her original vision and even some of the ways her business functioned in its early days to bring it into the future. And to power that strength of vision, she's grown more comfortable with speaking up about what she believes in most. She's actually strengthening the vision by putting her own words behind it. Your best ideas, however strong, rarely actually speak for themselves. And over years, even a strong central vision can start to come apart. To bring her company back together, to fortify that core, Eileen had to step up and use her own voice. Getting there, even after decades, is something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could recommend us to a friend or help recommend us to a lot more people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your thoughts really do help other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Let us know what you think about finding your voice as a leader. Also, who would you like to hear me interview next? Our producer, who is wearing flowy linen as always, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.